Well, welcome to another episode of Fukin Conversation. I am super excited today for our guest, Dr. Mal Madibu, is an associate professor in the Department of Social Justice Education at OISE at the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on migration and settlement, Black studies and the Francophonie. She is the author of many publications, including her newest book, Blackness and La Francophonie, Anti-Black Racism, Linguicism, and the Negotiation of Multiple Minority Identities, and the recipient of prestigious awards, including the Canadian Sociological Association, John Porter Tradition of Excellence Book Award, and uh, multiple other uh, honorable uh, mentions. Uh, so, uh, Amal, so, so, so uh, excited to have you this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and uh, I know you're. you're you, uh, just before we started, you said you're you're suffering from a, a bit of jet lag. You're still trying to. Yeah. Remember, um, that you were you were over in uh, Italy giving a, a talk and working with colleagues. Uh, so, how, but, but before we get into that, how are you doing this morning? I am fine, uh, Nick. Nick, thanks for asking. Thank you for having me. Um, as you said, I'm just you know um, a little jet lagged. But fine. <laughs> so, so what were you doing uh, over in Italy? You know, there is this amazing university in Italy, uh, Sant'Anna University in Pisa, Italy, and they have really amazing programs about Africa. They are so interested on the con- in the continent. Uh, do they conduct many researches there, and uh, they do co- capacity building and collaborate with. Uh, colleagues, you know, Sudanese in both in Sudan and the diaspora. So I am one of uh, their uh, colleagues they collaborate with in the diaspora, in this case in Canada, and I have been doing very important research even also with the UN in Sudan on uh, conflict uh, transformation. So they invited me this time to give a talk about um, a hot issue in Sudan and concerning Sudan and I also took advantage of the visit, you know, to uh, work a bit with them on our mutual or the work that we are doing, the studies and research, and you know, to plan for the near for the near future in terms of our collective and mutual work. So I I know we've all been experiencing uh, the pandemic now for some time, and things have opened up. Was have have you been traveling prior to going to Italy uh, for this 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 talk? Uh, was this one of your first international trips, or have you been since they've opened up uh, the capacity to travel a little bit more easily? Have you been uh, visiting with colleagues in different places, or even going back to uh, Sudan? Yes, you know, of course, I couldn't wait. Like you know, all of us um, couldn't wait for the pandemic to ease and for us, you know, to be able to travel because I am a traveler and identify myself, you know, as among other things, of course, black Canadian Sudanese and also a cosmopolitan citizen of the world. So I do a lot of work and I have a lot of collaborations worldwide. Right after or since that we were able to travel, I actually returned to Sudan twice, yes, to visit family, but also I have ongoing research in Sudan and I also have a volunteer-based university training in Sudan. I have done that um, about a year ago and now just two months ago. I also traveled to Louisiana twice because I just started a new research in, in Louisiana and uh, then, you know, Italy's, Italy's trip. 
And where did you go to Louisiana? Because as you know, I, well, maybe you don't, but I did my doctorate at Louisiana State University. And I did- Lafayette? Uh, no, in, in Baton Rouge. So oh, I- Oh, okay. Baton Rouge, yeah. It is not far from Lafayette, right? Yeah, yeah. no, it's, no, it's about, uh, about an hour away. It's like in between Lafayette. I don't even yeah. know if it's a, a, as much as an hour, but in between Lafayette and, and New Orleans, um, for sure. So you, yeah. were in Lafayette, you were in Lafayette. I was in, yeah, in Lafayette and also in New Orleans. And I stopped over in actually Baton Rouge, which I really liked. <laughs> I know I was there. Well, you know, I was, I was yeah. there uh, just two, I think two weeks before 9-11 was when I started my doctorate really? there. And then I left two weeks before Hurricane Katrina. So, I mean, it's not, oh, it's not the okay. happiest of, of markers of one's uh, doctoral studies is like two weeks before 9-11 and two weeks before Hurricane no, no. Katrina. You know, well, yeah, no, but actually, yeah, not happiest or even happy moments, but crucial moments that are still shaping, you know, the sociopolitical, sociopolitical life there. And even in research I conducted there, I just started, as I said, uh, in both in both city, people are still talking about both events. More so, I have to say about the hurricane, and uh, yeah, so very crucial events that are still impacting and shaping people's people's identities. There, I'm curious because, like, look, I in terms of reading your work, and then I I was able to do a bit of research uh, online and, and to get a, a better sense of your own biography and. From what was shared in terms of uh, highlighting uh, and congratulations in terms of your transition to your, your new position at OISE uh, was a description of your path as a first-generation immigrant to Canada from, from Sudan. And then in relation to the work that you've been doing over uh, you know, the past few decades, I think that the book that you've published, Blackness and La Francophonie, is at least for me in terms of the field of curriculum studies and history education and for francophone communities across Canada, probably one of the most important contributions of the last decade in terms of research and context in these fields of study. And I, I mean, I, I think all of my grad students should read it. I think Anglophone students in teacher education programs in Ontario for them to understand these, the, the importance and uh, historical context of Franco Ontarian and other Franco uh, provincial minority communities, and also the context of Quebec, to understand the nuances and complexities of the histories and the nuances and complexities in relation to the migrations from Africa and then the, uh, how that's transitioned intergenerationally into different forms of, of anti black racisms and, and the ways in which you're addressing that in your research. What I'm interested in is how did you come to this? this work. So, I mean, we have the book here, but I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about, you know, what has been your, your, your life history in relation to then fruition of what you put forth in this uh, exceptional piece of, of research and work uh, in this book. Yeah, thank you. I'm humbled by these, these comments and, you know, glad to hear that, you know, I'm, I'm engaging readers, which are also in turn engaging me, you know, you know, that uh, knowledge reproduction and co-production is circular. Uh, for me, any research that I do is a continuation of a previous research and also, you know, a beginning of a new, of a new research or at least a research that definitely culminates in a specific desired outcomes 
black feminists rightly rightfully remind us that the personal is political and i would add and vice versa so for me the issue of uh, the francophonie has been of interest to me since you know i was um since i was young basically an adolescent and the issue of anti-black racism has both actually have shaped my life and also my life speaking of my positionality has been shaping them but in this or at this historic moment you know when i decided to focus my research first in alberta the reason i moved in alberta because i really wanted to do research on and with blacks in alberta in western canada and then it happened to be alberta because there is a lack of research in general you know on black canada and black canadians but uh, less in um, about you know the black black francophones and uh, when it comes to alberta there is a gap a knowledge gap you know on the blackness blackness in general so i thought okay then let me go to a place and a space and a site where uh, the uh, the blackness is less explored so that we would understand more about um, about blackness and that you know then took me to alberta and uh, even before the george floyd issue and how it instigated uh, you know awareness um, about and uh, the struggle against anti-black racism before that you know that moment materialized i decided to focus on anti-black racism because they have been you know experiencing anti-black racism but also of course living and observing how black canadians still suffer it but at the same time how subtle anti-black racism is how subtle for me it was when i was in alberta in ontario moving to alberta i realized it is subtle but it is still you know very uh, very hostile uh, which for example through one of the issues i i analyze in the issue white in my book that white supremacy and how how present the far right is and how violent they they are and how they are occupying a space that you know you wonder how they are occupying it and are getting it in uh, canada's 21st 21st uh, century so the major you know for me the global theme of social justice the need to focus on the francophonie on black francophones and especially on the intersectionality of anti-black racism and how because of its continuation at present and it's i mean intersectionality with the francophone and discrimination you know towards the french language and the francophones and the need you know at this historical moment to do something that is really efficient and effective enough to allow us to fight anti-black anti-black racism because for me it is just it is still continues whether in subtle and or you know explicit ways it is just not acceptable it has been unfolding in the way that you know in the, how the, the theory i engage in the book of how for instance anti-black or critical critical race theory it speaks to the contradiction closing cases you know they are just little progress there here and there but the structural problem is still structural and if things continue this situation situation of un- social of inequity in terms of anti-black racism and again intersectionality with the francophonie 
if it unfolds as it has been in the past, let's say maybe even five decades since we adopted penalty endorsed the multiculturalism policy and we have all this you know, human rights legislation, but yet there is no progress in terms of the continuation of the enslavement of blacks now in the form in Canada, enslavement of blacks in Canada, now in the form of anti-black racism, it will continue maybe even again for five decades, but, and that is not acceptable. We want change now. And again, that is what you know, led me to, to write this specific, to focus the book and on these specific issues. And one of the things that you try to articulate for the, the readers, and often I think, and, and why the book is powerful for me in terms of the complexity of the analysis that you bring to it, but also providing an overview of the different historical context, uh, more in terms of the macro context, historical context for Canada, but then looking at different micro contexts to say, for example, the francophone communities in Alberta, and then uh, the implications for those who self-identify as being black, but then also uh, black francophones in Alberta, that when you set up the start of the book, you talk about the different kind of frameworks that we could, might think through the work that you're doing, whether that's critical race theory or or critical uh, multiculturalism or criti- critical multicultural theory. One of the conversations that tends to happen, at least here among some colleagues at the University of Ottawa is, oh, if you're taking up critical race theory, that's uh, from the woke colleagues in the United States and that's not very Canadian necessarily. Although you and I know that we have colleagues that take up critical theory here in Canada and differently. Mm-hmm. And then even as you address later on in, the, in, in, in your book about the implications of France and legislation of France of erasing or effacing the concept of race itself as a kind of anti-racist move that re, in the end, as you, as you make in your arguments, reproduces the very anti-Black racism that it seeks to efface. And so we have those influences, whether that's in Quebec or in other parts of Canada within the Francophonie. Uh, intellectual approaches to doing the kind of work and research, but also in the kind of discourse that takes place within communities. So I'm just wondering how you were working through that uh, and are continuing to work through those kind of conversations uh, in terms of trying to navigate between the limits of intercultural approaches versus the kind of pushback on if we're going to take up critical race theory or critical multiculturalism and the kind of work that we're doing here at the, you know, for some of us as colleagues at the University of Ottawa or like you at OISU or elsewhere. How I see it, you know, thought and associated knowledge are matters of mind, not necessarily of place. So we deproduce them and co-produce them wherever we are. Uh, Yes, we apply them to specific places and place impacts our thought and identities. But ideas travel, you know, because we ourselves travel. And uh, mm-hmm. in terms of critical critical race theory, and I don't want to deny, you know, the work of our um, American colleagues, you know, they have that they have done in terms of promoting critical race theory. But uh, in the book, I purposely associated to the black intellectual and political thought that is not just American, mm-hmm. but also diasporic. And because, you know, and we know that as it's, um, whether it is Screenshow or somebody else, it's uh, the proponents or even theorists, theorists, black critical race theorists, theory theorists, you know, acknowledge 
that it draws upon you know the experiences and struggles of the enslaved the enslaved blacks who are also african so i see it as diasporic more than linked to a specific to a specific space then to many spaces and even if it is produced in a specific territory because as we speak of um, historiography with specific geographic space Again, there is a need for the politics of solidarity, right, and thinking. Uh, when I was just in Italy, Italians teach uh, thought by constructed or developed by Africans, you know, by North Americans. Here we teach thought of other, you know, of thinkers associated with different places. So for me, thought is a mind and dialogue more than you know, a specific geographic territory. And we should engage anti-critical race theory and apply it to the Canadian context, which some of us, as you know, have been, have been doing and also theorized it and add to its theorizing based on our Canadian experiences, which again, I, but not I, and many other colleagues have done it. And even our American colleagues, you know, have a lot to learn and benefit from the Canadian perspectives on critical race theory. So for me, this is an, um, a conversation that is it's not a conversation. These are even our arguments that are should now be dated. And uh, as um, agents of decolonization, and as now, again, like I said, we have now really fight to anti, anti-Black racism in very effective ways. And to me, this is a decolonization project. So this is not the kind of conversations that will move us forward, but rather wherever the thinking is coming from, how does it speak to us? How do we engage and apply it in ways that allow us to achieve the social justice and the inclusion that we wish for? In the book, you uh, illustrate a long intergenerational context of migration of uh, communities of African descent or black communities. For example, I, I, you know, I was unaware until I read your book of the communities that uh, migrated from Oklahoma, for example. I was just down there in Tulsa. I was invited by Hanyu Wong to have a talk with her students and colleagues about the, the different educational aspects of truth and reconciliation. But I was, yeah, and I, w- I was wondering, like, I mean, in terms of your research, did, were, were there, were there connections to the 1921 attack on Greenwood in terms of the Tulsa massacre and the migration north to Oklahoma? Or was it just in general, different communities were, were migrating because what, you know, for job opportunities or what they were experiencing to Alberta at that moment in time? Yeah, so I was, I was just curious in terms of when you were doing that research, if, if there were some of those connections there. Well, the connection that I am aware of, there could be other connections that in at that historic moment, those events, racist events on in Oklahoma, but also the Canadian uh, government, you know, immigration uh, policy and recruitment and selection in line, you know, at the time of the racist racist vision on the nation and the connection between immigration and the Canadian nation. Uh, Canadian government went it was actively recruiting um, Americans, including in Oklahoma. Again, the intention wasn't the intention wasn't to recruit blacks. It just happened that there were the advertisement reached the black black communities, so that it was there was this dialect on both sides. 
pushing racist events in Oklahoma that pushed blacks and Canadian, you know, racist, um, again, immigration and nationalist project to recruit Americans. And again, you know, accidentally it reached blacks, then who moved to Alberta and first the racism, anti-black racism that I'm speaking about. The specific incident, you know, it's an interesting question. I will explore it, but I'm not aware whether it impacted it. It could. Well, yeah, and, uh, and it was just something for me because I just traveled there recently, yeah. and and yeah. uh, and so I was just wondering as I'm reading your book, I'm like, oh, I I wondered what were the implications to think about the communities if they yeah. had any ties to what was taking place there, or if it was just as you, as you pointed out in the book, I mean, opportunities. Those opportunities is, are, are are what you trouble though in in your like. So there's the promise in terms of immigration of opportunities in Canada as this kind of myth, right? <laughs> for, yeah. well, opportunities for some, but not for others if you're racialized yeah. a certain way uh, within the context of a, of a white supremacist system. And, yeah. and so your work, you, you know, and I'm thinking about this, this other piece yeah. that you wrote while at Carleton University, Reverse Inclusion, uh, Black Francophones and the Interface Between Anti-Black Racism and Linguicism. And I was just wondering, you know, what were the you know, you, you point at some insights that you learn from your participants in terms of uh, it's so important to be recognized and, and become Canadian. Uh, but at the same time, the process toward that is that it's not that inclusive for, for certain yeah. communities. Exactly. Yeah. It is the opposite. Yeah. The opposite of inclusion. And that's really, you know, I found, I still find that very striking because, you know, we are expected and we deserve to be, you know, when we uh, embrace and practice our citizenship duties to um, advance and you know make progress from a stage of our life to another but all and also from a stage of immigration to another when it comes to the black francophones because of the multiple jeopardy they are uh, faced with then it is the opposite is true you know when the the newcomers are in spite of the, all the hurdles and barriers that they endure, newcomers do better than basically those who are more, who spend longer time in Canada, who also are well better, better off than those who are here for a longer time. And it becomes like you mentioned the issue of intergenerational issue. The first generation, then my generation, is more established, better established, more included in society basically than the second generation, which is more included than the third generation. And to me, you know, I don't know what is more striking, more striking than than that, which is why that then I conceptualized this problematic in these ways. And uh, there is more work. I want to do more work on that, but also policy related work because it ties into what is going. What's going on now in terms of, you know, our Canadian national debates and even that programs are being implemented now to counter anti-black uh, black racism. So one of, you know, again, most shocking aspects of black, of anti-black racism when it comes to black uh, francophones is this reverse, um, it, this, um, reverse inclusion, which is basically a continued, continued, um, exclusion, very striking. Coming back to that context in terms of immigration, I mean, we see different provinces now taking what, and, and I wonder if you could comment on this because, and I wonder if 
this is the concept that different provinces have, have learned from. But you talk about Francophone communities taking a strategic national identity yeah. yeah yeah in relation to really kind of we could talk about the discursive regime of the history curriculum in different provinces and how that's taken up about the founding nations right and so whether it's britain and and france the two founding nations not to say excluding the first nations communities so you see like with the sovereignty act in alberta mm -hmm. uh different first nations now coming out and saying yeah. hey wait a second here you can't all of a sudden yeah. say you're a sovereign uh, nation or province in relation to Canada as a nation and then exclude us as nation to nation in this conversation. And yeah. you know, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to how that you see historically that form of strategic nationalism playing out uh, within a, a Francophone, a Franco-Canadian identity formation historically and the implications that you see playing out now in terms of Quebec politics or Ontario elsewhere and then in the micro context, I, I'm wondering, you know, your sense in terms of implications for students in schools. Yeah, for um, students in schools already, I believe, already face problems, right? This will just be added to what is going and face problems. You know, we know that it is the um, indigenous peoples, uh, black students, and my focus was on Blacks, Black Canada and Blacks, right? Understanding, of course, the, the differential racialization that we share with other with other communities in Canada because, it, and these issues have been documented, dropouts uh, from school, uh, you know, and the representation of Blacks in the school, in the school system and all of that. So it is nothing, I would say, this will not, is not a new colonial project for students in the school or even for the school system. It is uh, just an added uh, black feminist again talks about multiple jeopardy and how oppression is uh, is multiplied, you know, multiplies itself, but is also multiplied multiple jeopardy. So it's, it's these things are happening in a colonial context because I said Canada we in Canada are in a phase, and we should be actually in a phase of decolonization. We should embrace that um, increasingly as a collective, a collective project. You know, some people like you and I and others are engaged on it, and it of course impacts it not just impacts but it shapes the the school mm -hmm. the school system. So to me, it's just a part of the ongoing colonial project. We should turn the colonial gaze, as Franz Fanon would say, Fano would say, and make it a part of the anti-colonial and decolonial, decolonial project, including and especially in the school system. You know, what does it mean when that just happened tomorrow, right? Very recently, when Alberta talks about several nations and yeah, how how do we feel? ourselves, you know, based on our locations, identities, and histories. How do we feel about that? What, what, how does that impact us? How do we react to that? How do we analyze this, you know, serious and very problematic, basically colonial, colonial discourses? Like you said, it's happening across, these issues are happening across Canada, again, because these are systemic issues that are very much... Uh, integrated and integral parts of the continuing or ongoing political political project. So basically we need to continue to decolonize the educational system. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned the schools because 
even uh, this morning I was um, I was reading the site or I read yeah the website of the parents of black children and their what I consider as um, decolonizing recommendations they have made yeah and uh, very powerful recommendations based on you know experiential knowledge and observe experiences and fact that the parents of black kids have faced, you know, observed, understood, analyzed for years and years. And I see that as a manifesto of empowerment, again, of decolonization. So who took those recommendations seriously? The recommendations that are really intended to decolonize the educational system and to problematize and deconstruct, you know, the kind of discourses that occurred, for instance, yesterday in, in Alberta. How do you embrace like the response of the indigenous people, various nations that you uh, that you mentioned, for instance? So they are these decolonizing efforts are there for the school system. I mean, for the entire nation, for the entire structure, structures, all institutions to benefit from, but and including and in particular again the school system. So I thought, like, are the uh, educational boards, let's say in Ontario, are they even aware of these recommendations? You know. Did they try to yeah, follow up on them in any way, take them into consideration even for, for a second? So as we, again, focus on this continuing, continuous colonialism, let's also embrace, again, turn the, blo- the colonial gaze and embrace decolonization and make it an everyday, and also so everyday, but also structural, structural respo- responsibility and see what is out there and how can we benefit from it instead of reinventing the wheel. To me, just the recommendations and the amazing work that the parents of black children have been doing is really is an excellent example of that. Yeah, I was down at the uh, UNESCO uh, Global Forum for uh, Race and Discrimination in Mexico City, and and I mean, I, I know, yeah. you know, there were several precedents of different foundations and yeah. And ministers that got up and spoke, but they said that the the one thing that they're recognizing now yeah. is that look, there's already community uh, organizations and partners doing this amazing work. It's not to create something new. It's just how do we how do we provide more access to funding to extend their work to have an impact? Say, for example, right. in, in the schooling system, right? So so to address that, and I do see a lot more community organizations who've coalesced to respond. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and you do comment in the book too uh, that. As part of the decolonial project in Canada, that the media has a, a role to play, and for the most part, they've been slow to transition to actually take up these issues yeah. in in, in a de- decolonial way. So, I mean, you give the example of the CB, uh, the CBC, which we, de- we which we do has seen has been called into question uh, more recently. And I'm just wondering, do you have a sense yeah. that there's still work to be done there, or? Or, or are they addressing that in, in different ways? Uh, and is there a difference from your perspective now uh, that you're here in Ontario and, and, and OISE, the difference between what you see in, in Francophone media versus the Anglophone media? So I must say at this point, I am not really comparing. I did that in the past. It was my method also, in methodology, comparing Anglophone versus Francophone. Yeah. And I'm not saying that doesn't need to be done, but at present, it's not just my focus, it's not my project, because now I'm thinking through the lens of, you know, the Canadian nation, both Anglophone and, and Francophone. 
because yeah. as I mentioned in the book, of course, we know there is this, you know, thorny question and the, you know, long established conflict between the Anglophones and Francophones. But as colonial nations, there is also, there is agreements at some points, you know, we don't see the conflict between the Anglophones and Francophones impacting them or impacting even Canada in the way that for, let's say, conflict among ethnic groups or ethno, ethno-linguistic groups are destro- is destroying groups in, in Sudan, for instance, or somewhere else in the world. And I'm not saying I'm hoping that it will destroy them, but that mm. will cause any destruction in Canada. That is not the goal. But the goal is for me just I'm thinking along the lines of um, which you mentioned, strategic nationalism. Let's also, you know, I'm thinking, you know, they're probably thinking we are Canadian. Yes. Let's protect our Canadian, meaning this Canadian mainstream white colonial goals. Project them, but also be in conflict. So coexistence of conflict and of also of, uh, of and coming together as well. So I said, okay, and for me to use this important concept, you know, coming from the multicultural, critical multiculturalist, Ella Shuhat, in this case, of uh, the polyphonic, polyphonic, polyphonic spaces. Let's also return the gaze when it comes to strategic nationalism, embrace our multiple identities, but use them not to be, to work together at some point to reproduce racism, but to work together from different points, from different sites, then polyphonic, multiple sites, to combat anti-black in anti-black racism or another kind, another any other kind of uh, of this of discrimination. So look at what's happening in Canadian schools, both anglophones and francophones. For me, they are both reproducing the national, the problematic national re- narrative. And let us even, you know, those who embrace social justice, Anglophones and Francophones, both work together to fight them in both places. Again, just to go to tie what I'm saying to each other, um, the different aspects of what I'm saying to one another. Again, the parents of black children, I don't see it as being relevant only to the Anglophone or Francophone system, educational system, but to both. It's across the board, and I think that's the that's the myth too. Sometimes it's like within uh, sometimes the way in which, and that, that I think that's what I was trying to get at is in the media. Sometimes yeah. they play off like, oh, even the kind of question that got asked at the last federal election, like that it's only a francophone yeah. issue, as opposed yeah. to thinking like, no, uh, anglophones have had a long history. Uh, whether it's yeah. the Indian Act, all the other settler colonial policies that have been put in place or even the schooling system, that there hasn't been much work there, even though we'd like to think that there has been in terms of doing that. I think one of the most powerful things that you you demonstrate in your book uh, in terms of that, okay, let's say that everyone does get through the schooling system and they succeed, whether that's abroad uh, prior to coming to Canada. And then when they are here in Canada, once they hit the employment sector and are looking for a job, it doesn't matter uh, necessarily in terms of how much education you had or where you come from. What matters most is the way in which you're perceived or racialized by by others. And in terms of the work and your participants, you did that. What were the conversations in terms of thinking about how to address that necessarily, whether that's in the context of your research in Alberta or more widely speaking across Canada, as you said, from 
collaborating to to address that both within francophone and anglophone yeah. communities yeah, yeah thanks you know excellent questions um i realized i didn't address the question your question about the media in di directly and uh, whether there is need for more work you know to make the media in inclusive and i more inclusive in my book i speak to the issue of multiculturalizing uh, the media from critical perspective and when yeah. I speak of ongoing and living colonialism in Canada, I mean it is um, structural, you know, embedded in all um, institutions, not the, yes, the educational system, but also the media as an, um, as an, as an, as an institution. So there is a need to, for decolonization across the board, including, of course, uh, in the media, because of the important role that they play as they assume as and their impacts, as you say, and for them, for the importance for them and how urgent actually for the media to be decolonial by being much more uh, inclusive and representative. As for the issue of racialization, to tie it on what I said, it's also across the board, as you said, yeah, I, regardless of where education is, um, is attained for blacks because of the chronic anti-black racism and the racialization that you mentioned, what even I call racist racialization towards blacks. We know that there are barriers in getting you know, employment, accessing employment, but also the hurdles and anti-racism that demonstrates itself even after you know surmounting so many difficulties and getting, let's say, a respectful job. And uh, then the, there is the issue of racism in the workplace and my participants, and again, even from my knowledge of institutions, if we're talking now about educational institutions, even universities, I'm aware of casing, uh, whereby black professors were even fired from, from university. So anti-black racism is across, across the border. How to address it is for me and how participants, even in my discussions with participants, how to address and redress it actually come, it comes back and go again boils down to decolonization as a multi-layered uh, project and a collective project. Collective project means that like what you and I doing now, I see it as a colonial moment, decolonial I mean moment and a decolonial decolonial strategy. We each do our part. At this point, it is not a volunteer work. It is a responsibility. It is a, it is actually a duty, a citizenship duty. But it also means that institutions have a bigger role to play because it is the institutions that frame policies and should apply policies effectively and in equitable ways. You had you had mentioned earlier that you, you've you been starting a new project down in Louisiana, which I'm excited. Actually, I was just invited to, and I wonder if it's a part of the same group. There's a there's a, a couple of scholars at the University of Lafayette uh, looking at the Francophonie in Louisiana, and I had been asked to join and participate in um, some meetings and forums that they're having. I don't know if that's what oh. you're part of, but I'm wondering what, what is what is the work that you're doing now down in Louisiana, and how is that connected to your your past work? It's just it's a continuation of my research, right? With my new job, yeah. job in a new province, and I'm starting, you know, completed projects and starting new projects, and so I thought expanding 
my projects. I have already, you know, as I said, I conducted research in a number of countries in the world, in addition to Canada. But this time, I said, "Well, you're you're on the go." <laughs> Thank you. So are you? So are you? <laughs> so are you, Nick? So I thought, you know, Louisiana have has been of interest to me for a long time because of my interest in the francophonie and because of the intriguing and complex um, issues that concerns and revolve around the francophonie in Louisiana. And so I thought, okay, new topic, and because of the recent, you know, historic but contemporary issues of anti-black racism and so on and how it was taken up in the U.S. And so I thought of, uh, then it's time for me to do a project in Louisiana. It is not, it, because it is my project, but I work with colleagues there. It is not a part of the project that you mentioned, but I am aware okay, of it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, the... I am aware of it, and it is, yeah, I know it is. With uh, Natalie Kiefer and uh, Jerry Parker, I think. And Jerry, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Thank you for <laughs> mentioning it. Yeah, I'm hoping yeah, to you know, put our efforts together. Oh, that's, I mean, it's such a small world, right? Like, uh, uh, <laughs> we're talking today and, uh, and, 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 th and this is taking place. So what, I mean, and, uh, I was fortunate enough in Louisiana for my doctoral studies. I, I, mm -hmm. my, my work was with the largest Franco indigenous community in Louisiana, United Home Nation. And, oh, okay. um, yeah. it was in relation to, uh, oral history, their oral histories of their ex lived experiences as a francophone community before, during, and after desegregation in the in the public schooling system, and so um, yeah. for them, yeah. you know, the, the the biggest priority was they at the time when, when I was there twenty years ago, there was only a few elders that that continue to speak French, and and the biggest thing yeah. the United Home Nation uh, what they wanted to distinguish was that their French was an older French than the prior to yeah. Acadians seeking refuge in Louisiana, right? Yeah. That their French predated that in terms of their relationships with France. So yeah. I looked at the kind of historical policies of segregation in relation to the United Home Nation. But uh, yeah. I do know uh, yeah. from the work of uh, my co-supervisor, yeah. uh, Petra Henry, yeah. she's in the midst of publishing a book where she looked at the implications of uh, the, uh, about 10,000 Haitian refugees that came to Louisiana and that a lot of policies in response to their migration uh, created oh, the kind of dynamics of later on segregation yeah. that took place in an Anglophone Protestant schooling system that the common school yeah. system, at least this is the argument that she's making mm -hmm. across the United States. So I'm not sure, like, I, I love to hear about the kind of work that you're trying to do in Louisiana and also since mm -hmm. uh, transitioning to Oise, mm -hmm. the kind of work that you're doing yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, also the, the work you mentioned is really, um, is really fantastic and amazing. For me, I would say what I'm doing now is a contemporary, contemporary context in Louisiana, that is of what your colleagues are, are doing. I explore what it means to be black in Louisiana today, okay? And I'm learning, learning uh. that to be blacks, to be black in Louisiana means, also means among other things, means to be Creole, okay, which gets us into the reconceptualization and redefinition of Creole identity. It also means to be French-speaking or to be Francophone. Mm. And I noticed there is this perception of, yeah, speaking an older French, or, but to me, the French that I spoke, even with my participants, and I did 
interviews in French. The, for me, it is just French. She's the French that I speak and we're able to speak for hours, you know, yeah. for hours. Yeah, and, and you do say, and I and I, again, like, I mean, Jacques Derrida gave, I think, this talk at the LSU, Monolingualism of the Other, Monolingues de l'autre, Je parle seulement une langue, je parle jamais une seule langue, where you troubled anyone trying to own the French yeah, language. Yeah. And you and you offer that critique too. Nobody yeah. owns the French language. <laughs> that's part of that's exactly. part of the decolonial yeah. project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and it also means you know yes, the loss of French language to the for the young generation, but also relearning you know the language, reclaiming it, relearning it. The willingness of studying in immersion French immersion schools. It also means relearning and relearning Creole uh, because of the loss that it experienced. And I'm actually a part of group, a group that uh, teaches, so learns also Creole because I want to learn the language, but I know that especially the young generation, you know, is interested in learning Creole. So it is, there is the loss, but there is also this gain, you know, of strategizing to to practice identities by relearning re this, relearning actually these languages and reviving, reviving them. That is the, among many other issues in Louisiana, but as I said, it's a new project, so I'm still discovering new results. So. And uh, yeah, the project I'm doing in, I just started also the my other shared project in Toronto. It is... Um, you know, I'm interested in the theme of black identity, how it is negotiated, constructed, reconstructed, transformed, developed in, um, in the diaspora, basically, across across place. So this is going to be black identity, or it is black identity among the second generation Canadian-born, in Canada, the Canadian-born, because the research okay. I have, the, most of the research I have done to date focuses on the fairest generation, like myself, and what we call a fairest and a half generation, right? But so I, this time I thought, you know, to expand my research this time, I explored the Canadian born, the Canadian born, and I already see a lot of uh, similarities, but also distinctions among the, between the study in Canada and in, in, in Louisiana, complex and intriguing issues. Stay tuned for the results when they are disseminated. <laughs> I just uh, I wanted to see where you're at. I wanted to, if you if you indulge me for a second here, I just wanted to read from your your conclusion. You say, uh, sure. uh, while the participants constructed multiple identities, Canadian Canadian francophone and Black African affiliations, they endured multiple jeopardy that they countered with multiple negotiations in order to enhance their inclusion in the francophonie and Canadian polity. In doing so, they illuminated strategies that offer hope just uh, for a just future. They were excluded from Canadian identity because, as uh, critical race theory, race theorists would argue, the focus on domination construct this identity in a manner that proves the centrality of race and racism. Race continues to matter as a social construct, reinforcing white privilege and white supremacy, which in turn reproduce anti-black racism. This racism illustrates the negotiation of the dominant Canadian identity since it results in the marginalization of Black African Francophones in pan-Canadian institutions in a society. And you, and you go on to say, to address this plight, the participants reconstructed Canadian identity in a more inclusive way in which they asserted racial, ethnic, 
and ling linguistic diversity. They negotiated this affiliation by taking on the duties of citizenship, such as voting, polit political activism, by taking part in anti-racism protests and relations they built with people from various backgrounds. And, I, and so I'm just wondering, like, uh, as you move forward in terms of your work, whether that's with communities uh, internationally or at uh, the University of Toronto, uh, how do you see uh, continuing uh, the kind of insights and works that you learned from your participants in terms of your now your, your, your locale in Ontario? I hate to say that your locale in Ontario, because you've said, I'm a cosmopolitan citizen. So for, for me, I, I see that wherever you see those injustices taking place in the world, that's the kind of work that you want to be involved in. But so including Ontario. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. <laughs> including Ontario, but I don't, I don't want to limit yeah. you to Ontario. I know after our conversation, I say you're like Nick, not just Ontario. But you are right, Nick. You know, you said, yeah, including Ontario. That is fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I don't know what's next for you. Now you're getting over jet lag. What's your plan for the, for the holidays? It's going to be mostly work for the, over the holidays, actually. Oh, no. Yeah, but also I will celebrate for a few days. But for yeah. me, celebration is every day too. I celebrate, I embrace life every day, every day, every new day when I wake up, it's a gift in the morning. It's a gift I embrace, that I embrace. I'm very helpful, hopeful, because there are people like you in our world, you know, because uh, they are organizations like the Parents of Black Children, and organizations I came across, there is, among others, for example, in Louisiana, in Lafayette, this organization called Creole Inc. Uh, they are young generation and older generations who are embracing social justice, you know, within and across our institutions and societal places. So to me, the, the present is a moment of hope, realistic, what I call realistic hope. And because of that, the future will be much better. Well, well, thank you so much, Amal. I, uh, again, appreciate you taking the time, even after uh, and with the jet lag, to come on to Hukum Conversation today. <laughs> I hope we get to meet in person. I'd love to have you here at Ottawa. Ottawa U, when you, if, so. if, you, if, you, if you're ever in Ottawa, please let me know. And I do hope that we get to collaborate together on that project in Louisiana as well. I hope so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for for so, listeners yeah. out there, if you, if, if you don't have a copy of Blackness and La Francophonie, uh, Anti-Black Racism, Linguicism, and the Construction and Negotiation of Multiple Minority Identities, you need to get a copy and, and read this to get a sense of where we come from and where we need to go. Uh, so thanks again, Amal. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you for having me.